The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, January 15th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Would your cat eat your body? Oliver, yes. Layla, strong maybe. That's personal to me. Of course, your cat would eat your body after you died, or in my case, if my cat was even slightly hungry around 4 a.m. But now they've done an actual study confirming kitty is gonna eat ya, kitty is gonna eat ya, from the journal of would a cat eat that? No, no, no. From the journal of settling arguments you didn't want to be true but are. You might know that journal from their groundbreaking paper, Human Flesh. Does it really taste like chicken? Come on, it was a peer-reviewed study. I'm sorry, that's not peer-reviewed. That's a Yelp-reviewed study. Okay, so the actual name of the journal is Forensic Science, and the name of the study is The Scavenging Patterns of Feral Cats on Human Remains in an Outdoor Setting. I will now read from the abstract. Two cases of feral cats, Felis catus, yes, that's the that's not Roadrunner cartoon guessing at the joke name. That's apparently the actual name for feral cats. Isn't that a little redundant? That's literally Latin for kitty cat, Felis catus. And when they are askew, they are Felis catus wampus. So two cases of feral cat, Felis catus, scavenging were documented at the Forensic Investigation Research Station in Whitewater, Colorado. Human remains at the facility are placed outside, observed daily, documented with field notes, and photographed. So yes, yes, if you're thinking this is what they call a body farm, and people who donate their bodies to science might never learn that the science that they personally advanced is of the would-a-cat-eat-my-body science. Yes, they became cat-davers. Decomposition, again, reading from the abstract, decomposition is scored on a Likert scale. Ooh, I found my new favorite scale, the Likert scale of body decomposition. Here are the levels. One, freshly dead. Two, signs of decomposition. Three, flesh decay. Four, Steve Bannon. No, sadly, I looked it up. The Likert scale, that is just a synonym for a ratings scale. I guess when you're doing Will My Cat Eat Me When I Die research, you have to gussy it up with any formality available. Although maybe I shouldn't joke. This is a serious research paper. This is not a game. Let me return to the abstract. It goes on. Decomposition is scored on a Likert scale. Scavenging activity is monitored with game cameras. All right, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is a game. Game cameras? Like GoPros? Or the cameras in the pylons of an NFL broadcast? Okay, Gene Scaratoris here. Gene, what are you seeing on the review? Is Mr. Whiskerpuss eating his dead owner? Or is it more of an exploratory nibble? Well, without a clear angle, Jim, I have to defer to the ruling on the field just to nibble. No, wait, wait. We're seeing something new. Oh, Mr. Whiskerpuss going for the full chomp there. The call's going to be overruled. The Washington Post describes the study this way. Both cats started eating when the bodies were in early stages of decomposing and ended at the onset of, quote, moist decomposition when fluids begin leaching. Both ate all the way to the bone. And by the way, I thought moist was about to experience a rehabilitation. The uh, Washington Post continues. And although the cats had a buffet of more than 40 bodies from which to choose, each one returned to the corpse it had selected again and again, 
one almost nightly for 35 nights straight. Quote, the main theory is that cats are like picky eaters, said Sarah Garcia, the lead author of the paper. Quote, once they find a food that they like, they'll just stick with it. So if you're a cat owner like I am, or just loved by a cat, keep that in mind. Are they bonded to you? No. Once they find a food they like or identify a food they might one day want to try, they just tend to stick with it. On the show today, I spiel about a waste of a debate and how badly we ignore major policy proposals. But first, cat wrangler, corpse procurer, autopic feral cat photographer. These are all jobs. And to quote that prehistoric bird whose beak played records on the Flintstones, it's a living. But with the advent of CDs and MP3s and birds who don't talk, many jobs are disappearing. So what to do? Well, Andrew Yang has a couple ideas, and we didn't invite him on the stage last night. But what we do do right here is talk to an economist and a former strategist of the Prime Minister of the UK. His new book is A World Without Work, Technology Automation, and How We Should Respond. Daniel Suskind, up next. Perhaps you've heard all of the dire predictions by the year 2030, 2040. X percent of jobs will be lost to automation. And the only reason that we can't get more specific than X percent is that they haven't invented the AI yet to calculate that to the hundredth of a decimal. Well, in Daniel Suskind's new book, A World Without Work, he breaks down those statistics and he does so in an historical and fascinating way, drawing from economics and psychology and just the reality of the world so far. I want you to know, I originally booked Daniel Suskind as sort of a, okay, let's have an expert as a rebuttal for Andrew Yang's universal basic income, the robots are taking all of our jobs campaign. But after reading the book, it goes so far beyond that. And I'm pleased to have him on the show. Thanks for coming on. That's very kind. Thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. And let's just put Andrew Yang in the corner for a second. And let's talk about history. Because you don't, it's funny, you come to conclusions that are pretty worrisome, and yet you engage in so much of the history. And the history is people being really worried and much of those worries not coming to pass. And it's true. It's logically consistent. We could have been wrong in the past, but still right in the future. It was very responsible of you to highlight all the predictions that were wrong. But what do you think is the value of going over the history before you make your assessment about what's to come? You have to begin there. You can't sweep it under the carpet. Ever since modern economic growth began, people have worried about robots, not robots, but, you know, the, the technology of the time taking jobs. And yet time and again, broadly, they've been wrong. You know, there has all despite, you know, remarkable technological advances, there's always been enough work really for people to do. And that has to be the starting point, because for many people, that historical context is an important reason for dismissing worries about automation in the future. Um, and you, you, you've got to, I think you've got to engage with that. And so that's where I begin the book by, by looking at this history, this history of anxiety and, and trying to draw out of it the reasons why people were wrong time and again. And then I use that to try and, you know, I try and sidestep those mistakes in, in thinking about what lies ahead in the future. So I'll give you one stat. I mean, I'll give the listeners one stat. 
1950 census, they listed 271 occupations currently filled by people in the United States. And of those 271, I asked the listeners, think, how many vanished because of automation? There was so many, so much machinery, so much technology invented since 1950. How many of the 271 are gone? And the answer is one elevator operator. And that's just a very small, digestible fact. But so many of the other charts and trends show that, yes, the jobs came. Yes, the jobs created savings in the amount of man hours that uh, were required. But also, yes, plenty of work for everyone. Well, why? Why was there plenty of work? And why won't there? Well, then we'll get to why won't there be plenty of work now? Is the way that the machines worked in the past a little differently in terms of creating different jobs that might not happen in the future? Yeah, I mean, the the elevator operator example is interesting because just to just to jump on that for a second, it it's it seems to suggest that technological progress has had a fairly muted impact in the past. Right. If the only job title that has disappeared are elevator operators, then, you know, what on earth are we worrying about? And and one of the important distinctions that economists have been making more and more over the last few years is this distinction between jobs and tasks. So while it's true that, you know, maybe many job titles, not many jobs, not many job titles have, have disappeared, the tasks and activities that make up lots of different jobs have changed really dramatically. Uh, you know, if you look at any job, you know, people, you perform a wide variety of different tasks compared to what you might have done in that job 30 years ago. So thinking in terms of jobs is actually a very unhelpful way of thinking about the future because it, it masks the underlying churn and change that takes place in, in the different activities that people have to do in their jobs. Just, just I mean, one sort of, and, and this really came across, it was um, McKinsey and company did a, a review of or looked at 820 occupations in the US. And, and what they found was in the spirit of the elevator operator example, they found only 5% of those jobs could be fully automated given existing technologies. But what they also found was that more than 60% of those jobs or about 60% of those jobs were made up of tasks, 30% of which could be automated. But that's not necessarily a bad thing when you look at what those tasks are. Um, elevator operator is 100% a task that's very rote doesn't require much intellect, really is quite boring, and you're actually in a very confined space. So it's kind of a terrible job. Uh, And the other jobs where a large portion of the tasks have been automated, those specific tasks are not, they don't stir the soul, shall we say. Let me go back to your original question, which is, well, what's different? What's changed? And I think the answer to this, and really the, it's what drives a lot of the thinking in the book, is a, is a process that I call task encroachment, which is that you know, every day, almost, we hear stories of systems and machines that are taking on tasks we thought that only human beings could do, whether it's driving a car, making a medical diagnosis, draw, uh, drawing up a, a legal contract, designing a building, composing music writing a, a news report, whatever it is, these, you know, many of these things we thought were out of reach, you know, that, that would provide people with, you know, displaced workers with a refuge to go to. Uh, and yet, more and more tasks like these are, are being automated. And it's, and it's this process of task encroachment that just more and more tasks and activities are being taken on 
by these systems. And that more and more of the boundaries that we, you know, we think demarcate those tasks which machines can do and those that they can't do, more and more of those boundaries are falling away. Yes. It's it's this process that just there are fewer and fewer, you know, just over time, just fewer and fewer you know, distinctive tasks and activities that human beings are best placed to do that drives a lot of the thinking in the book. Right. That's the sort of short answer to why it's different. Just these systems and machines are becoming increasingly capable. Right. And I think I was also engaged in what you call the superiority assumption, which is that even when you whittle away the tasks that machines are good at, what remains is always something that humans are superior at. And that, you predict, is going to change and is changing. Like, I would say that elevator operator or a large percentage of the task of a street sweeper, let us say, uh, the stuff that remains like piloting the uh, machine uh, rather than just working a broom, piloting the street sweeping machine and making decisions about who to hit and not to hit. For instance, humans are good at that. But you know, you know, diagnosing a freckle as cancerous or non-cancerous, uh, many diagnosticians and doctors take great pride in that and say a human is the only one who could do that, but they're wrong. Mm. One of the things we do, and, and this is, you know, at the start, I asked the question, you know, well, why is it that people were wrong to worry in the past? Or I said, you know, that's a question that I was interested in. What you realize is that most of the time they focused on the harmful effects of technology, what economists call the substituting force, you know, the, the impact of technology that displaces workers from different tasks. And they ignored the helpful side of it, the complementing force that tended to raise the demand for workers elsewhere in the economy. You know, let, let me let me give you one one example of this complementing force. You know, one of the things that has meant there's always been enough work for, or enough demand for the work of human beings is that as time has gone on, technological progress has meant that economies have changed. You know, if you look at the British economy, 500 years ago it was made up of farms, 300 years ago factories and today it's made up of offices and so people displaced from different parts of the economy could always tumble into new parts of the economy you know, the economy changed that that's been a force that's tended to help workers in the past there's been somewhere for these displaced workers to go and yet if you look for instance it was a, a, a statistic i found quite striking if you look at you go to 2010 and look at the u.s Mm. Only about half of 1% of U.S. employment in 2010 was in industries created in the first decade of the 21st century. So, you know, the economy has changed a huge amount. And we can all point to the different ways in which the U.S. economy has changed and all these new industries and new roles. And, uh, but ultimately, it's not created a huge number of jobs for people to do. And so what I try and do in the book is look at all these different forces that might have helped in the past and explain why I'm worried that they may not help in the future. I mean, I should say, I don't, the, the thesis of the book is not that uh, uh, we're going to wake up tomorrow or in the coming few years and there's going to be some technological big bang after which lots of people find themselves without a, a job. There's sort of mass unemployment. That that isn't what I'm what I'm arguing. What I, I don't think that's going to happen. And I think if people pick up the book expecting that, they'll be disappointed. I think it's something different, which is that as we move through the 21st century, just more and more people 
are going to find they're not able to make the economic contribution that they might have liked to make in the 20th century. It's less dramatic, but I still think it's a fundamental challenge to the way that we currently live together. So what about Andrew Yang or yeah. the UBI idea? How effective, if, if the big prescription is, let's think about redistribution, how effective is, say, $1,000 a month to everyone? I mean, my, my main thought about Andrew Yang, just just before coming on to the, the UBI, just think looking at it from a, a distance is that, you know, in my view, my book isn't really a book about the future. It's a book about what's happening now. Yeah, I think there's a very close relationship between what we might call technological unemployment, where some people are unable to find paid work, uh, and inequality, economic inequality. I think these two things are very closely related. And we know just by looking at various uh, measures of inequality in various parts of the world, just the general picture tends to be one of rising inequality. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people are worrying about automation at the same time as they're worrying about rising inequality. The two things are very closely related. And they're closely related because they both emerge from a market mechanism that's doing a, an increasingly poor job of sharing out prosperity in society. Inequality is what happens when some people get more than others in this market mechanism. And technological unemployment is what happens when some people get nothing at all. But the two problems are very, very closely related. I say, you know, I, I say the technological unemployment, oh, sorry, the inequality is a sort of birth pang of technological unemployment, that it's a sign of something else to come. But the mistake that I think that people make in thinking about the sorts of issues that I'm writing about is that it's a sort of distant, looming threat but actually, I think it's very closely related to the inequalities that we see around us today. It, on, on the issue of the, the basic income, and what I spend quite a lot of time in the book trying to make sense of is this idea of, that it's universal. The universal basic income does a good job of solving the distribution problem, which is how do we share our income in society? But it doesn't solve what I call the contribution problem, which is, well, as a society, how do you maintain the sense that everyone is sort of paying in some way to the collective pot. You know, traditionally, that's done through the work that we do and the taxes that we pay. Uh, in, in the UK, you, know, you either pay your taxes or if you're out of work, you, you're getting benefits depends upon actively looking for new work and retraining for work if you can. And so social solidarity comes from a sense that everyone sort of pulling their economic weight. I think the main problem in my mind with the universal basic income is that it doesn't provide necessarily that sense of social solidarity that I think is needed for something like that to work. Paying people a basic income and, and but not having them contribute in any way, uh, I think undermines a sense of fairness that many people in society feel. And that's why I write a lot about not a universal basic income, but a conditional basic income. Uh, where people who receive the basic income uh, are asked to make non-economic contributions in return, and and that might sound slightly wacky, but you know, you know, many people make non-economic contributions to society today. They're just not officially recognised. So in, in the UK, for instance, about 15 million people volunteer, which is just to put it in context, that's about a, a number that's half as large as the entire working population in the UK. So you know. 
a large number of people volunteer. The sector's worth about 50 billion pounds. So that's about the size of the, the British energy industry. So it's you know, hugely valuable. Um, but these activities aren't, you know, recognized in a formal way. And, and what I'm saying is, well, why not make sort of basic income payments conditional on these sorts of social activities? Um, recognize them formally. Of course, if you paid them, then no one would volunteer. Point taken. But I, the, the observation I'm making is more that there's all sorts of non-economic contributions that people make to society. And there's a real opportunity with something like a basic income to recognize those right. contributions and to say, yeah, as a society, as a community, we think these sorts of things are valuable and important. And that can sort of foster the sense of social solidarity that I think any type of distribution uh, mechanism needs. True. A world without work, technology, automation, and how we should respond. Daniel Suskind, it is a, uh, a fascinating and thought-provoking work. And I say that advisedly. It is a work. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. I thought it was a terrible debate focused on all the wrong issues or not any issues at all. Whether Bernie Sanders ever said a woman couldn't be president once in private to Elizabeth Warren, who then leaked possibly via surrogate to CNN that he said it to her and then CNN confirmed it via Elizabeth Warren. CNN then asked Warren if she could confirm CNN's report that Warren had reported the details of the meeting to CNN. The question was put to Bernie Sanders by CNN. Senator Sanders, CNN reported yesterday that, and Senator Sanders, Senator Warren confirmed in a statement that in 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. (laughs) So armed with a Sanders denial of the CNN moderator's question about the CNN report that Elizabeth Warren heard Bernie Sanders say something that he says he didn't say, Even if Elizabeth Warren not only says she heard it, but confirmed that the report was accurate, that she heard it, armed with Sanders' denial of the Warren leak and the Warren-confirmed report, which Sanders denied, CNN went to directly deny Bernie Sanders his denial. Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren... What did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? Bernie and the crowd just had to laugh. But an interesting wrinkle of the CNN denial of the Sanders denial of the CNN report of the Warren leak that Warren confirmed was this. Do you know who poured cold water on the accuracy of the story? CNN! Other CNN anchors. Here was Erin Burnett. Warren had no problem with this story yesterday. It was uh, clearly leaked by her team to CNN. It was it came out more than a year after the meeting. It came out on the eve of a debate. Uh, this is pretty clear. Uh, she knew about this. She she sanctioned it. Everything around it indicates that. Huh. But at least during the debate, we spent a lot of time on that and subsequently looked into seeing who could count to 30 really well. I'm not going to play that clip. It was stupid. This was all so inefficacious. But so were a lot of the questions, which were less, hey, you want to be president? Tell me what your policies will be. And more of the type, hey, can you solve this verbal riddle? And Mayor Buttigieg, to be clear, would you allow Iran to become a nuclear power? Yes or no? Now, remember, if you say yes, you will definitely never get to be president 
So this question becomes a paradox. But if you say no, you can't actually guarantee it, except to possibly be blamed in the future for something you don't have direct control over. So that really was a great question. But while Pete Buttigieg was puzzling out that brain teaser, they were hit with another one. Vice President Biden, I want to ask you about North Korea. President Trump has met with Kim Jong-un three times. President Obama once said he would meet with North Korea without any preconditions. Would you meet with North Korea without any preconditions? The word preconditions in presidential debates is like the word ensuing in football. Ensuing possessions, ensuing kickoffs, so much ensuing. In debates, there is a right answer to the precondition question. No, only with preconditions. In the imaginary meeting that I haven't set up yet because I'm not, you know, president, I will, of course, insist on preconditions that are essentially pre-surrender and that we pre-win. There is no downside to announcing peace through strength, through imaginary negotiations. Just like throw this out there, too. There is no difference between a precondition and a condition. Would you meet without preconditions? Yes, one would be that they don't murder me during the meeting. Also, I'd like sparkling water and flat. I know I'm a bit of a diva. Some sparkling, some flat, no murder. I'm a a brilliant negotiator. So with all these terrific inquiries flying about, Pete Buttigieg, black people don't like you. What's up with that? Bernie, you're a socialist. What's your answer? With all these great probings, totally ignored was the fact that Elizabeth Warren wants to absolve student debt, and yesterday she said she would do it by executive order. There are two other members of the Senate up there, one former member of the Senate. Might it be interesting to hear their reactions to this plan? Nope, guess not. Did you say a woman couldn't win when dozens of times in the past you said pretty clearly a woman could win? Thanks. Thanks for your answer. Don't believe you. We have 19 days until Iowa, and I really think the media this time around has done less to focus on actual policy differences than any time I've ever seen during a presidential race. We have had more discussion on busing in 1973 than we have had on inflation now. What is a proper goal for inflation? What steps should be taken to pursue that goal? Do you know how much government policy is dependent on candidates answering that question? It's a lot. It's quite a bit. One of the reasons why less policy is being discussed is that, in fact, there is a lot of policy being discussed. Well, it's mostly Medicare. But other policies are discussed. But... The difference this time around is that there is a gigantic gap between two camps, two really plausible camps of who could be president. The distance between the left and the center left is vast. Bernie and Liz are both proposing so many big things in so many different ways. I don't know that voters are grasping the enormity of the overhaul being put forward. I mean, we're talking about taxes, medicine, regulations, land, entitlements, banking, lending, borrowing, inheritance, energy farms, trade, prison, basically everything. Bernie promises a revolution. Liz promises big structural change. And both candidates really can point to polls on each individual issue saying, well, my policy that I'm advocating is popular with the American people or at least Democratic voters. And sometimes those polls are dependent on how you ask the question. But it is true that most of the things they're advocating on decent polls would show that they're advocating for things that people like. So why not pursue all these things? It seems to be not just good politics, but the right strategy. Here's why. 
And I've been thinking about this for a while. For weeks, I've been sitting on this piece of insight delivered by the Romaniacs podcast. The Romaniacs, if you don't listen to this podcast, they exist to be against Brexit. They were gutted by Boris Johnson's victory. They're all good thinkers. They're activists on the British left. These are not neoliberals. These are not third-way Tony Blair types. They're of the left. But what they witnessed over there in the UK was a huge loss by labor, Jeremy Corbyn going down in flames. So it came to them, and this was the day after the election. They tried to figure out why. There were a lot of reasons. Corbyn himself factors in greatly his past, his personality. But Romaniac's panelist Ian Dunt put his finger on a phenomenon that I think could well play out in the United States if revolutionary structural change becomes the mantra. The fundamental flaw in the logic is the idea that those most vulnerable need radical change delivered in a revolutionary way. And it's just not true. Those most vulnerable actually need incremental change because they know in their fucking bones, they know in their DNA that they're the first victims of revolutions. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So going out there and polling people and getting a, a response that all our policies are popular. You know, it's popular to nationalize railways. It's popular to give free internet. It's popular to do this. It's popular to do that. Individually, it may be popular. But when you offer those 40 policies as a slate to someone who is one pay packet away from destitution, it's fucking scary. And they just don't yeah. grasp that. Because, Evolution, not revolution. Because, need, yes, mm. because revolutionary principles are basically a bourgeoisie construct. So they're always... Are you calling the momentum bourgeois? How uh, very dare you? Absolutely. They are, they are completely the, the, the dream of the comfortably off. Yeah. Huh. You know, there are some great questions based on that that you could put out during the debate. Like to ask Sanders and Warren. Of your many, many plans, which is the priority? They can't all be first. Which do you get to after you get to other ones? Or do you think Americans want upheaval in every aspect of their lives? Or just the aspects of their lives that aren't working out for them? Is it that you think that there are so many, many, many aspects of American life that are failing? And if so, would you say that Make America Great Again might well be wielded by a tyrant, but is essentially true? Or to the moderate candidates, is moderation your creed or your tactic? Which of these issues are you immoderate on? Senator Klobuchar, there's got to be one thing in American life you just want to blow up and toss out. Vice President Biden, is there nothing to what Senator Sanders and Warren are saying? Or is everything great? And if it's not great, what did you do in your 40 years in the Senate and eight years in the White House that needed to be done that you couldn't get done? Former Mayor Buttigieg, why would anyone in Washington work with you, given how you've denigrated Washington on this stage in the past? Or are you also promising a revolution like Senator Sanders, and how would you define your revolution? Does Senator Warren always go too far? Where doesn't she go far enough? Anyway, questions like those, make them a little more pointed, reference a little more actual policy. Those would be a lot better than preconditions and gender cognition and nuclear inhibitions. Could the next debate be a bit more policy-focused? I might have to give that a big thumping no. And that's it for today's show. The Gist's associate producer is Priscilla Alabi. She expects one day to be devoured by her pet turtles, Cuff and Link. That is, by the way, how Rocky Balboa went. 
Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist. Upon his death, he requests that his body be laid to rest in a simple pine box in the feeding trough of the Southland Casino and Kennel Club's Greyhound Paddock, just like his granddaddy went. The Gist, secretly hatching a plan. Because my kitties, they're so cute, I just want to eat them up. Did you hear me, Oliver? I mean it. Oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.